If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John uh, chapter 15. That's where we're going to be picking up uh, together this morning as we continue our walk together through the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should see one near you. Feel free to grab that. Is there a blue one or a green one? Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to have that one. You can even, I mean, you can write your name in it. You can make notes. You can do all that sort of stuff. Um, and bring it back with you here next week. Here at Rivercrest, we like to stand for the reading of Scripture, uh, not because we're trying to be different, but to remind ourselves that when, when we read the Bible, it, it's the King Himself who is speaking. Uh, and there is a certain readiness that comes with standing, a certain active uh, participation that comes with standing. And, if, and, and it reminds us that we aren't just in the presence of one another. Um, but that the Holy Spirit is here, that He is working, and we really and truly are in the presence of God right now, and it's God who's speaking to us. So would you stand with me now, and let's just jump into this. We're in John 15. I'm going to start, I'm actually going to start in 16, and then uh, and we're going to read all the way through uh, 16.4 here to start. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask you today to come, uh, to be our helper, to speak to us through your word, to give us Uh, confidence that what you are saying is right and good and true, that it is for our good. Lord, I pray for, I pray for us to have ears to hear. I pray for us to have eyes to see. I pray that you would, as, as only you can, that you would just melt away the distractions of our hearts, 
the things to come, the things that we have in our minds even now, Lord, would you just help us to focus now and be with you, to be present together in this room with you, knowing that this was a this was a divine appointment that you set with us before the foundations of the earth, that we would be here together with you. And I pray that you'd help us to embrace that, help us to walk in that even now. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, sometimes, uh, maybe a lot of the time, we struggle as a people. I think this is one of the weaknesses, at least in my heart, probably in our entire species, all right, is we struggle to have right expectations of the world around us. Like, like we do this in relationships, we do it in our work, we do it with how the world responds to us. We even do it with silly things like, like, like hobbies and, and other activities. We just have... We have really wrong expectations, and that's what often leads to uh, an unhealthy level of angst and frustration. And I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Now, I've confessed to you at various times over the last year or so uh, that I can be, um, by nature, a little bit overly competitive. Um, it's one of those traits that God has, uh, that he is continuing to work out in my heart. And we are, we're working on it, okay? Now, what most of you, though, wouldn't necessarily guess is that Laurie is actually the more competitive of the two of us. Uh, and, and, and listen, I knew that before we got married. I, I, was, I was aware of that, um, yeah, she's back in the room. It's, it's, it's safe now, uh, or maybe not. I, I knew that before we got married, but I found that out in very real and tangible ways on our honeymoon when we decided to play a few holes of golf together. Now, um, as this story goes, there's a couple of things that you need to know uh, and, and keep in mind. The first is that Laurie had never played golf and her entire life, and, and to my knowledge, I never even picked up a golf club, okay? Anything outside of putt-putt was completely foreign to her. That's the first thing. The second thing you need to remember is that Laurie is left-handed. She's a full-blown left-hander, and the only golf clubs that the place had for us to use were right-handed clubs. Now, knowing that, you would probably, right, have the expectation that this golf outing is not going to go very well for Laurie, um, especially since it was her first day. But I want to tell you, with the first swing of a golf club in her entire life, no practice swing, didn't even line up. I, I'm not fully convinced she knew where we were aiming at the time, okay? Didn't look at the flag, none of that. It resulted in a spectacular shot that launched up into the sky, disappeared into the clouds, and almost like an angel in heaven grabbed it and placed it on the green within two inches of the hole. She walks up, taps it in for Birdie, looks at me like, saying so hard. <laughs> she went nuts. I wondered if I just married a golf prodigy, right? It was incredible. But then we stepped onto the second tee. And my ultra-competitive wife, fueled 
by new expectations of how easy this game is. And her, obviously, her own natural gifting in all things related to golf took a swing at the ball, looked up into the sky again to look for that angelic hand to grab hold of the ball and place it on the green. Couldn't find it in the sky to save her life because the ball was still resting solidly on the ground two feet away from her. Have no fear, though. She's a fierce competitor. So she stepped back, regrouped, took another swing, making contact, this time only to see her ball now slicing to the right into the oblivion of the Jamaican forest, never to be seen or heard from again, at which point my calm, you have to trust me on this, this is true, my calm, sweet, beautiful bride took that seven iron and smashed it so deep into the earth that even King Arthur himself could not remove that thing from the rock. It was just a matter of a couple of minutes, from one tee to the next tee. But the expectations from one hole to the next could not have been more different. And it's our expectations on the front end that most often determine our reaction to the results on the back end. Jesus wants his disciples, I want you to know this, he wants you as his disciples to have right expectations. He wants his followers to be informed and he wants them to understand that as his followers, their relationship, your relationship with the world is no longer what it used to be. It's that something for the Christian has legitimately changed. That's why he says there in verse 19, look at that. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now stop there for a second because that's the change. That's a real and tangible change. That's not how we started, right? Every single person, Christian or non-Christian, believer, non-believer, one thing that we all have in common, every single human being that you will ever meet has in common, is that we all started out of the world. Every one of us. That's our default position. That's the factory setting for every single one of us. When we come into this world, we come in of the world, what the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians 2 as following the course of the world. That's the way he describes it. That's our natural leaning. That's the bent of our hearts, that we are following the course of the world. But now in Christ, that's changed. You see, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're now followers of Jesus Christ, not followers of the world. We're followers of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so for his disciples, for those who he is describing here as being chosen out of the world, there should be different expectations with regard to our relationship today with the world. There should be expectations that reflect the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. If I find myself underwater, I have the expectation that I will not be able to breathe. The situation always impacts our expectations. And what Jesus says here, this is for all his disciples, is that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I want you to see that there in verse 20. It's very important that we see this. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. In him, you and I are fish out of water in this world. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And this is important because as Christians, we not only have a restored relationship with God, 
But being in Christ, we also have a new relationship with the world. That's what Jesus is getting at there in verse 19. Remember, he said, if you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But, but, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, what's the result? The world hates you. You see, you have a new priority. You have a new allegiance. As a Christian, the way Paul describes in Philippians 3 is to say that you are now a new citizen. It's that your citizenship is in heaven. And listen, we tend to forget this. We tend to forget that Jesus didn't just choose us out of a pool of potential followers. All right? All essentially neutral all could go one way or the other. He didn't choose us out of neutrality. That's not, that's not how it works with him. We aren't just chosen for the team. We're not that kid at recess, right? Just hoping that they'll call our name so that we might get to be on the team. That's not how it works. No, Jesus chose us out of the world. That's what he says very specifically here. Out of the broken. He chose us out of the dead. That was our team. We had the t-shirt. We wore the jersey of Team World. That's where our citizenship was. And he chose us off the fractured and sinful side of the world while we were his enemies. And he brought us into his family. That is the gospel truth. That's what Jesus has done for you. And so if they persecuted Jesus, and we know that they did, they will also persecuted you. They will also persecute you. So you should expect it. You should have right expectations because, and this is where Jesus goes next, he's giving us a holy responsibility. We back at verses 26 and 27 there. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We've talked about bearing fruit for the past two weeks in here. We've talked about bearing fruit as it relates to sanctification, as us being uh, made more and more like Jesus, as we've become less and less like ourselves, as, as, as we continue to be refined in our, in our spirit to be more and more like our Savior. We've also talked about bearing fruit in, in terms of evangelism. We talked about that last week, and I'll be honest with you, that's one of the most difficult messages that I've ever had to give because I don't want that burden. I just want to be as honest with you as I can. I don't naturally want to be burdened with the the fact that friends of mine, family members of mine could be lost into condemnation for all time. That is a strain on my heart. That's what I woke up with Monday morning. That's what I felt that over the course of the week. And I wanted it to be over, but it's not over. Because Jesus doesn't let it be over here. That's what we're still talking about here today. Because you see, uh, bearing witness is what we're called to do. This is how we bear fruit. We see that the means of bearing evangelistic fruit is through the holy responsibility of bearing witness. And that's not something that happens unintentionally. Uh, We definitely give a testimony by the way that we live, okay? People can observe certain characteristics about us. Is he honest? Is he he respectful of those around him? Does he appear to care about other people in general? Those are demonstrable traits that can be observed without really even having a conversation with someone. We can kind of just see that from the outside and make those determinations. 
But to bear witness is different. To bear witness is different. And we need to recognize that difference because to bear witness is a legal term. That's what he's meaning there. It's a legal term that's used to describe giving a testimony or testifying and, and, and to offer firsthand authentication of a fact. It's to speak with clarity and conviction about the truth of something. You see, Christians are people who bear witness, not just that Jesus existed, not just that Jesus was executed. There's a historical witness to those realities. Anybody who questions that, they are far off the reservation as it relates to just history in general. Okay, There's enough historical evidence that those things happen that you and I can say them with great confidence, but that's not what we're called to bear witness to. We are called to bear witness, not that he existed, not that he was executed, but that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, the way that John put it, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's our holy responsibility. Jesus says this, this is what he says, that when the Helper comes, he will bear witness about me. This is what the Holy Spirit's work, to come and bear witness about Jesus. Jesus is spending what he, sending what he calls the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit that proceeds from the Father. There's a whole Trinitarian witness in there that it's so tempting for me to get into and spend the next three months unpacking the Trinity here with you just based on those, pack, pack, those verses, but I'm not going to do that. Um, you can go and get your study Bible and go nuts in there. But the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. And then here's what 27 says. And you also will bear witness. Witness, and that witness is both in word and in deed. I heard a story recently about a little boy named Michael. Uh, Michael was a quiet and, and shy little boy. They'd moved into a new uh, neighborhood, and one day he came home from school um, and said, You know, Mom, uh, he's the new kid. He said, You know, Mom, Valentine's Day is coming up, um, and I want to make a Valentine for everyone in my class. That was his goal. I want them to know that I love them. His mother's heart, though, sank when she heard her son saying this because she had watched from the window every day as the kids got off the bus and, and all those other kids, they knew each other. They'd grown up together. Michael's the new kid and she watched as they are laughing and playing and walking together and, you know, slapping each other and jumping, doing all that stuff kids do. And Michael's just kind of walking in the back, walking down the street, just kind of following. Not really one of them. Uh, always the new kid, always alone. And so what she worried about is that in this moment that his son would get an acute sense of the rejection that she was seeing as an outsider, that he would feel that. But at the same time, she was caught because she, she didn't want to discourage the good intentions of her son. And so she purchased a bunch of paper and crayons and glue and stuff. And, and for a few weeks, she watched as he made 35 individual Valentines for the kids in his class. And the big day came. I stacked them up, you know, like under his arm and took off to go to school, ran out the door so excited. And, and, and all she could think was, this is going to be a really tough day for Michael. Like he is not going to come home in the same disposition in which he's leaving. And so she got everything prepared. She made some cookies. She got, you know, had the snacks that he liked out ready to go so that when he came home, she'd be ready to go all, you know, full varsity level mama on him and just bring him into the house and make everything better. That afternoon, had it all set up, she went over to the window to wait for the bus to arrive, and she saw all the children walking together, just like every other day, except for they were all carrying their valentines, right? Because they had the candy and the little note that said, I like you, or whatever, from the little girl in the class. 
They were all walking, carrying their valentines. And there was Michael walking behind everyone. But walking, he was walking a little faster than normal. Um, And she thought, all she could think is that, man, he's just hurrying home. His heart is broken. He's been devastated. She's like, I'm going to make everything just right. I'm ready to open the door as soon as he runs in and make him feel better. Because you see, his, his arms were empty. Michael didn't have any valentines. Michael came into the house and... Again, she went into full mama mode. She called to him, come in here and get some cookies. Come here, I got your snacks ready. But his face wasn't sad, and she was really caught off guard. And he wasn't crying like she thought he would be. In fact, he marched right by her and said these words. He said, not one. Not a single one. He said, I didn't forget one. They all know that I love them. I like that kid. (laughs) It was Oscar Hammerstein, the famous playwright, who said, A bell's not a bell till you ring it. A song's not a song till you sing it. And love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love until you give it away. You see? This is what happened. As disciples of Jesus Christ... We're called to love one another. That's what we're called to. It's not even complicated. We say love one another. We talk about what the kids, what does that look like? It means that you, it was so simple. It means that you care for them. It means that you do things, tangible things for them, that you show this love. It means that when the hospital is calling, you're there. That when hard times are present, you're there. That when the good times are there, you're clapping. That when the bad times are there, you're crying. That, that this is what it looks like to love one another. That's the Christian mandate. In fact, that's what Jesus says. He says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, if you love one another. He also said this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What that means is we didn't make Jesus the valentine. We didn't sit in there for weeks cutting it out, getting it just right to make the valentine just for him. No, we didn't do that, but he did that for us. From all eternity, he sat there preparing to show his love for us. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should do what? Look at it. That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. That's what he said. That you, This is why I've done this for you. I've chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide. And then he tells us here that the way of bearing fruit is by bearing witness. It's by giving the love of Christ away to the world around us and how we live and by telling the world around us the reason why we live that way. And yes, this is very, very difficult. This is far more difficult than we want it to be. Jesus says that the world is going to hate you. It's going to hate you if it hated him. He says that there in 16.2, that they will put you out of the synagogue. I want to be honest with you because when I first read that, I went, well, that's okay because I don't go to the synagogue, right? Uh, any anybody probably not probably not a lot of synagogue activity in your day-to-day week but the synagogue was more than just saying we're going to not going to be in the church anymore the synagogue was the cultural center of the time it was more than a building more than a place it was the safety net of society that's what the synagogue was it was the place that was familiar and safe the synagogue represented security it represented um being welcomed. It represented belonging. And Jesus says 
that as we lay down our lives for you, that's what Christian, for, for one another, that's what we're called to do. He says, lay down our lives and bear witness to Jesus. The response of the world is they're going to throw us out of the cultural centers of our day. If you have ever felt yourself not quite fitting in with today's world, that's okay. That's how it's meant to be. We lay down our lives, they put us out. So listen to me, if, if your Christian walk, I want to I be as honest with you as I can. If your Christian walk never requires anything of you that creates conflict with the world, that creates tension with the world, the problem isn't that the world doesn't see you. It's not that the world doesn't recognize you. It's that it sees you and it recognizes you and it doesn't see Jesus. I want you to hear that. The world tells you that you deserve to be successful in this life. The world tells you that your kid's future depends on how many activities you can pack into a given week and how much, uh, how much organic kale and Greek yogurt you can cram down their throats. The world tells you that your health and happiness are the ultimate desires and ultimate goal of your life and that anything apart from that, Anything that would stand in the way of you being happy is just offensive and silly. And I will be honest with you, the church is drinking it up. The church in America, the church in South Carolina, the church in Columbia, the church in Lexington, we are drinking this up as if it's the gospel and we are living it out. And so the reason we don't feel hated the reason that we don't feel persecuted isn't because we've managed to navigate life and faith so well that we don't offend. It's because we've simply adapted to life in this world and we have failed to bear witness. If you're going to follow Christ, prepare to be misunderstood. Prepare to be marginalized. Like if you've never been left off an invite list because of your faith, it's probably because your faith is invisible. Now, it could be because you're an unfriendly jerk. I want to be honest with you there. Don't, it could be that. It could be that people just don't like you. And that's just about as bad as being an unchristian Christian. But if you look like Jesus, if you love like Jesus, if you bear witness to Jesus, what we know is that you will have conflict with the world. We need to have those right expectations because that's our holy responsibility and that's why Jesus sends us his divine helper. Look back at verse 16, uh, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When Jesus was here on earth, he could only be at one place at one time. Now, he had ways of getting around kind of quick. Like He didn't always have to use the boat to get across the lake. We know that, right? 
He could do some things a little different, but he could only be in one place at a time. That's part of how he emptied himself in becoming man. He limited himself. He laid aside his ability to come and walk as one of us, to understand what it was like to be a man, to walk a true human life. But when he leaves, this is what he says, but when I leave, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can be with us at all times. The Holy Spirit can be with us wherever we are. In fact, He can be with you and He can be with me. And we talked about this in our uh, Essentials class a couple of weeks ago. That verse about where two or more are gathered in my name, there you know I'll be also. That's a church discipline verse. That has nothing to do with us needing to be together in order to somehow give the Holy Spirit permission to come and be among us. This is the advantage that we have now that Jesus is gone and the Holy Spirit is here. It's that as we bear witness, as we testify of our Savior, as we engage together in the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations, bringing together what, the, what Revelation calls a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, look at what the Spirit does. It's there. It's right there in verse 8. It says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Helper does. That's His work. It's what the helper does. He does what we cannot do. And I wonder how much time we spend trying to convict the world. How much time do we spend trying to, trying to change the world's mind, arguing on social media, wasting our time on that? I promise you it will never work. There's not enough memes in the world to get somebody to all of a sudden go, okay, yeah, I get it now. That's the helper's work. He convicts concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. That's what it says, because they don't believe. In fact, earlier on, he said, uh, the reason they, that if I hadn't come and done this, they would not be guilty of sin. That sin was not believing in him. He's going, look, now they have no excuse. They've seen this. I've been among them. I've done this work. Now they're without, they're without excuse. The philosopher Blaise uh, Pascal once said, man is great insofar as he realizes that he is wretched. That's not a world statement right there. You're not going to find that on a t-shirt. You put that on a bumper sticker and people are going to look differently at you. He said, man is great insofar as he realizes that he is wretched. You see, we tend to think about righteousness in degrees, like a fuel gauge. I need a little bit more righteousness today. Running low this week. I better get some more righteousness, put it in the tank. But there's no sliding scale with righteousness. It's either righteous or it's not. You are either righteous or you are unrighteous. There's no somewhat righteous or almost righteous. You can't be mostly righteous. I always think about that scene from The Princess Bride where he says that he's just mostly dead. We can bring him back. He's just mostly dead. You need the right spell. There's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either alive or you're not. You're either righteous or you're not. The Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness, even the false righteousness that we're tempted to cling to. And he convicts concerning judgment. It's the understanding that the ruler of this world will be judged. Look, he's already been defeated. Satan's already lost the fight. The cross and the resurrection show us that the ruler of this world is already presently defeated. But the day is coming when judgment will fall, when all things will be made new. That's the way he says it. I am making all things new when sin and death are destroyed once and for all. And that's the mission that you and I join in today. 
I know sometimes people are tempted to think that the mission of the church is just to be the church. Like to just come together on Sundays. To see if we can get our budget big enough to hire some more people. To see if we can build a cooler building with a taller steeple. I don't know that we'll ever have a steeple, just for the record. I don't think it would look good on top of this building. I think that's really the issue. But no, that's not what the mission of the church is. It's not even about seeing how many people you can get into one room at one time or how many services you can have over the course of the weekend or how many multi-site campuses you can have and how many people might hear your voice through projections. We're only a step away from holograms, okay? It's coming. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to join God in his renewing work of all things here and now. That's the mission that we join in with Jesus. That's what it means to bear witness. That's what it means to bear fruit that abides. It's to testify of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to use your voice for that. And when we do that, when we have the right expectations that the world will hate us and persecute us, and we accept that holy responsibility of bearing witness in our culture today, to our families today, and our neighborhoods today, to the lady at the checkout line at the grocery store today or tomorrow, we know it won't be easy, but that's why we can rest in our divine helper, trusting him to do his work in us as we faithfully do our work in serving him. That's the mission of the church. The only question you really have to answer is whether or not you're participating. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess my weakness to you. I confess my fear to you. My desire to to not be uncomfortable is so strong. I want the world around me to work perfectly. I want the world around me to like me, to welcome me, to say where it's not, that, that, that we need that guy to be a part of our group. To, I want that. And I know that sounds shallow, and I hate the fact that I just admitted that out loud both to you and to your people, but that's part of who I am. And so, Lord, I pray that you break me of that. That you would come and break us of our desire to fit in. Help us to have a desire to welcome others into life. I pray that you'd help us to give people Jesus and trust your spirit to do the rest. I pray that in his name. Amen.